The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 24th. In today's news, President Trump wants to reopen the economy as soon as possible, even as public health officials object. A deal on a coronavirus stimulus package could be near. And huge discrepancies across states are muddling the meaning of test results. But first, the big idea. Viruses have spent billions of years perfecting the art of surviving without living, a frighteningly effective strategy that makes them a potent threat in today's world. That's especially true of this new novel coronavirus that has brought our world to a screeching halt. It's little more than a packet of genetic material surrounded by a spiky protein shell, one thousandth the width of an eyelash. And it leads such a zombie-like existence that it's barely considered a living organism. But as soon as it gets into a human airway, the virus hijacks our cells to create millions more versions of itself. There's a certain evil genius to how this pathogen works. It finds easy purchase in humans without them knowing. Before its first host even develops symptoms, it's already spreading its replicas everywhere, moving on to its next victims. It is powerfully deadly in some, but mild enough in others to escape containment. And for now, we have no way of stopping it. Respiratory viruses tend to infect and replicate in two places, in the nose and throat, where they are highly contagious, or lower in the lungs, where they spread less easily but are much more deadly. This new coronavirus adeptly splits the difference. It dwells in the upper respiratory tract where it is easily sneezed or coughed onto its next victim. But in some patients, it can lodge itself deep within the lungs where it kills. That combination gives it the contagiousness of some colds along with the lethality of its close molecular cousin SARS, which caused the 2002-2003 outbreak in Asia. Another insidious characteristic of this virus, by giving up that bit of lethality, its symptoms emerge less readily than SARS, which means people often pass it to others before they know they have it. It is, in other words, just sneaky enough to wreak worldwide havoc. Viruses much like this one have been responsible for the most destructive outbreaks of the last hundred years. The flus of 1918, 1957, and 1968 plus SARS, MERS, and Ebola. Like the coronavirus, all these diseases are zoonotic, meaning they jumped from an animal population into humans. And all are caused by viruses that encode their genetic material in RNA. That's no coincidence. The zombie-like existence of RNA viruses makes them easy to catch and hard to kill. Outside a host, viruses are dormant. They have none of the traditional trappings of life, metabolism, motion, the ability to reproduce, and they can last this way for quite a long time. Recent laboratory research showed that although the new coronavirus typically degrades in minutes or a few hours outside a host, some particles can remain viable, potentially infectious, on cardboard for up to 24 hours and on plastic and stainless steel for up to three days. In 2014, get this, A virus that had been frozen in permafrost for 30,000 years that scientists retrieved was able to infect an amoeba 
after being revived in the lab. When viruses encounter a host, they use proteins on their surfaces to unlock and invade its unsuspecting cells. Then they take control of those cells' own molecular machinery to produce and assemble the materials needed for more viruses. Among RNA viruses, coronaviruses, and they're called coronaviruses because they're named for the protein spikes that adorn them, like points on a crown, if you zoom in on a microscope. They're unique for their size and relative sophistication, these coronaviruses. They're three times bigger than the pathogens that can cause dengue fever, West Nile, and Zika. And they're capable of producing extra proteins that also bolster their likelihood of success for spreading. Once inside a cell, a virus can make 10,000 copies of itself in a matter of hours. Within a few days, the infected person will carry literally hundreds of millions of viral particles in every teaspoon of his or her blood. Unfortunately, humans have few defenses against these burglars. Most antimicrobials work by interfering with the functions of the germs they target. For example, penicillin blocks a molecule used by bacteria to build their cell walls. The drug works against thousands of kinds of bacteria, but because human cells don't use that protein, we can ingest it without being harmed. But viruses function through us. With no cellular machinery of their own, they become intertwined with ours. Their proteins are our proteins. Their weaknesses are our weaknesses. Most drugs that might hurt them would hurt us too. For this reason, antiviral drugs must be extremely targeted and specific. They tend to target proteins produced by the virus, using our cellular machinery, as part of its replication process. These proteins are unique to their viruses. That means the drugs that fight one disease generally don't work across multiple ones. And because viruses evolve so quickly, the few treatments scientists do manage to develop don't always work for long. That's why scientists must constantly develop new drugs to treat HIV. And it's why patients take cocktails of antivirals that viruses must mutate multiple times in order to resist. Modern medicine is all about catching up to these new emerging viruses. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, President Trump, under growing pressure to rescue an economy in freefall, said yesterday that he may soon loosen federal guidelines for social distancing and encourage shuttered businesses to reopen, defying public health experts who have warned that doing so risks accelerating the spread of the coronavirus or even allowing it to rebound. Trump has received urgent pleas from rattled business leaders and Republican lawmakers imploring him to remove some of the stringent social distancing guidelines that he put in place for a 15-day period ending March 30th. The various arguments, which are gaining traction across the political right, can be boiled down to this. No matter how many people may lose their lives to the coronavirus, many millions more stand to lose their livelihoods if the economy does not reopen soon. The consensus among experts on the public health side, including infectious disease expert Tony Fauci, is that closures should remain in effect for many more weeks to mitigate the outbreak, the worst effects of which we've yet to feel here in the United States. But Trump's chafing against that notion, and he's impatient to get life back to normal. More than 42,000 Americans have now tested positive, and our death toll has surpassed 500, with more than 100 new deaths reported on Monday. Officials have considered options 
including allowing people to go back to work if they're able to avoid public transportation or to return to their jobs if they don't work in areas with high infection rates. Another option under consideration at the White House is a gradual scaling back of current restrictions where people younger than 40 who are healthy to go back to work can go in to the office on a certain date, followed by people ages 40 to 50 and then 50 to 60. Public health experts say this is generally a terrible idea, but the doctors don't get to make the final call. The president does. Number two, after a day of partisan rancor and posturing on Capitol Hill, the outlook grew markedly more positive late Monday afternoon when offers and counteroffers were exchanged. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer convened Democrats on a conference call and told them he was hopeful about striking a deal by the end of last night. Some senators encouraged Schumer to announce a deal in principle before he went home, but several issues remained unresolved. So after hours of negotiations that wrapped up around midnight, Schumer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin prepared to leave the Capitol without a deal in hand, but optimistic that they could announce something later today. Mnuchin said there are still documents that are going to be reviewed and turned around, but he also said he's hopeful. Trump told reporters at his press briefing last night that a deal is near, although he tweeted some criticism of the negotiations, so that's always a wild card. Democratic concerns have focused on a $500 billion funding program that Republicans want to create to give loans and loan guarantees. Democrats are calling it a slush fund that lacks any oversight because the Treasury Department would have broad discretion over who gets the money, and the money could go to Trump himself. Asked about this last night, Trump responded, quote, I'll be the oversight. That did not reassure Democrats. As a final step in talks late last night, Senate negotiators were working on putting some oversight mechanism in place that gave Democrats a seat at the table and added some transparency. Presuming a deal is clinched, lawmakers and administration officials hope for swift passage through both chambers. But how the House would process the legislation remains to be determined as members on that side of the the Capitol are out of session and seem unlikely to return in mass to vote. Several options are under review. Unresolved issues in the underlying deal include several under the jurisdiction of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee related to student loans and other issues. Negotiators are also working on how to tailor large pots of money that are supposed to be dispersed to the airline industry, state governments, and hospitals. Number three, some states are keeping their negative tests for the coronavirus secret, while others aren't. Some track state lab results while ignoring test results from private companies. Some states restrict the availability of tests. Others are making them much more widely available. For example, Ohio's ratio of positive tests seems high because its website stopped reporting negative tests after March 15th. So doctors can't tell whether New York is really the epicenter of the disease or whether places like Ohio are harboring similar numbers of carriers of the virus and simply haven't done enough testing or haven't disclosed enough information to uncover them. No state in the country has reported fewer positive test results per million residents than Ohio. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that we're flying blind because we have so little idea about the virus's penetration into our society in many regions of the country and the number of people affected. But what we do know is that supplies have evaporated for patients who need the drugs that Trump has been touting as unproven treatments. The U.S. has all but exhausted its supplies of two anti-malarial drugs that are being used by some doctors in the U.S. and China to treat the coronavirus. The sudden shortages of the two drugs could come at a serious cost 
for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients who depend on them to alleviate symptoms of inflammation, including preventing organ damage in lupus patients. There's been a 300% week-over-week increase in orders of chloroquine and a 70% week-over-week boost in orders of hydroxychloroquine. And some people are trying to self-medicate, which you definitely should not do. An Arizona man is dead after he took a drug meant for aquarium cleaning that contains chloroquine phosphate. That's the drug Trump touted over the weekend as a possible coronavirus treatment in spite of a lack of study by health officials. The toxic ingredient he and his wife consumed was not the medication form of chloroquine, which is used to treat malaria in humans. Instead, it was an ingredient listed on a parasite treatment for fish. The man's wife, speaking anonymously, told NBC News that she'd watched televised briefings during which Trump talked about the potential benefits of chloroquine. The name chloroquine resonated with her because she's used it previously to treat her koi fish. The couple, both in their 60s and potentially at higher risk for complications of the virus, decided to mix a small amount of the substance with a liquid and drink it as a way to prevent the coronavirus. Within 20 minutes, both became extremely ill, feeling dizzy and hot. Shortly after arriving at the hospital, he died. She's now under critical care. But she's speaking out because she wants to warn others that they should listen to medical professionals for the best advice and not try to come up with their own remedies. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.